Hello and welcome to Deep Impact, a deep dive into Wildbo's most unloved work five years on. These words are ours for us alone, and nothing we say on this podcast is meant to be binding. Coming up next is Elliot Diebold. <laughs> uh, and that was Reuben Morehouse. And well, we are here to talk about the first interlude of Pact, Bonds yeah. 1.x. Um, so Elliot, did you think that Pact would have interludes as well when you when you started diving into it? Uh, I, I did I did already know it was going to have interludes, but right. I mean, this is already, unless I'm blanking on an example, nothing in Parahumans has had a, like a series of diary entries. Like this is already cool and different. Um, yeah. I mean, diary entries are the uh, practitioner equivalent of an online message board, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True. Um, but no, this was, this was really cool and, and different and in a lot of ways, is exactly what I love about what Wild Bird does with the interludes in Parahumans. Um, so, mm. uh, you know, I loved this chapter and I'm keen to see however however many more interludes there are in Pact. Yeah. Um, you know, 16 or whatever. Or I guess there's bonus ones too. So, it's interesting because this interlude, I mean, we're going to do our plot summary, but the plot of this story really isn't important at all. Um, the plot of, sorry, the plot of this interlude. There are a few important things, but it's, it's mainly about just kind of getting the atmosphere and the vibe of the life of Rose Senior, who's, this is her diary. Um, would you agree with that, Elliot? Yeah, I I would say that everything, or or like, you know, this is even meant to be a set of sort of cherry picked diary entries and what, what has sort of been picked are the ones that, you know, have to do with Rose Senior or explaining the important parts of Rose Senior and her character to to us. Yeah, kind of the pivotal moments in her life that led her to have the uh, collection of worldviews that, that she displays at the very start of this chapter. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's interesting. She, you know, she's just had a whole chapter dedicated to her, and I still feel like there's so much more that I want to say. Um, and <laughs> she's been so important to things so far. I have a feeling that the legacy of Rose Senior is still going to be a very important part for for a, a lot longer in this book, so um, I'm keen to see even more of Rose Senior. Yeah, I, it's not a spoiler to say that Pact is Wildbo's shortest story, you know? Yeah. And uh, uh, there definitely is this feeling of, like, I just want more, I just want to <laughs> know more about this world. I just want to see more people in it, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's not, I can't explain that too much without going into spoiler territory, so we better start the plot summary. Um, so yeah, this, this interlude is, is basically collected pages from Rose Senior's diary, starting off with one when she is eight years old or very young. I think it's, it's specified eight years old. It it, Um, it isn't, but the other ones are eight years later and they specify that she's 16. So, um, I, I sort of went back and edited the notes to say eight because it's something we kind of learn later. Yep. Makes sense. Um, so we are... In the story, uh, Rose is basically describing how she was tricked by um, somebody called Paige uh, to, to kind of be tricked into this, you know, shed or something um, and basically beaten up by a bunch of kids. Yeah, I, it, it's interesting. I, I've said multiple times throughout this podcast that Rose Senior is a dick for not introducing everyone to this world earlier, but mm. this chapter seems... Well, the first half of this chapter at least seems purpose-built to uh, call out that philosophy and say, no, actually, being yeah. integrated into this world so early on kind of fucks you up. 
Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll specifically call attention to why she didn't indoctrinate her children later on. But yeah, I, I do love the idea of Rose, you know, being eight years old and basically being existing in this world, not awakened, but still kind of in danger, you know? Yeah. Um, just because of people, not necessarily because of others. Um, and so her dad has basically told her to memorize a phrase phonetically, which is, with this bloodshed, I pay you fur fur, exact my revenge, um, to call out to a demon in case things go bad for her, right? <laughs> like, yeah. man. Good parenting. <laughs> we're off We're off on a wild start already. Um, and I, I, I mean... I just love the way the dad, which he, when she recounts her dad telling her this phrase, his exact sort of comment afterwards was like, I mean, you know, Furfur fur shows up, you probably won't be that much worse off. Like, use it when you think you might die, because, you know, with Furfur, fur, you yep. won't be that much worse off. And so it's still like, use this when you think you're about to die, and hopefully things won't get much worse for you. It's just, <laughs> no. you know, <laughs> it's not things a normal eight year old has to really consider. I don't think the demon's name is actually Furfur. I think that's just Rose <laughs> misremembering or misinterpreting what her dad has told her. Oh, um, yeah, I mean, it could be. But then also there's one called Arse Pint, so, you know, sensible names right. doesn't seem to be a requirement to be a demon. Um, sure, sure. Um, so, uh, basically, after this, Rose, uh, Rose kind of... Oh, she says this, and nothing really happens, but the kids all run away. She's kind of scared them off. Mm. Um, and she runs to tell her dad what happened, and we basically see through her eyes her dad uh, going out to steal some hair from Paige. And we don't ever really find out what he's done with it, but we do find out that uh, one of the, one of Paige's parents, presumably, or family members, has come to kind of negotiate a ceasefire with Rose's dad. There's this great bit where Rose's dad gives back the piece of hair and whoever, th- whichever Duchamp, Duchamp is meeting with Rose's dad says something along the lines of, is this all the hair? How can I trust you? And Rose's dad says, "Well, you can't." <laughs> so tough shit. Um, and it's it's also horrifying because this seems like something like having one of the daughters beaten, and then presumably an adult male going and finding the other eight year old girl and cutting off all her hair. This seems like a family feud ripe for escalation, and yet yeah. they're willing to call everything to a halt just to get the hair back, which just Im- implies to me that there's some terrible thing associated with him having her hair that I don't even think I want to know what that means, but it's, <laughs> it's so great and spooky. And, um, yeah, I mean, this whole first set of, of, um, diary entries where Rose is so young really just feels like wild bows having fun with, you know, a kid's perspective on this fucked up world. Like, you know, she's got that thing that the kids have where they're aware that there's like tension or, or what emotions are happening, but mm. she doesn't really understand why. Like, she's like, oh, everyone's tense about the hair. That's kind of strange. And, and of course, yeah. like, I'm sitting here being like, oh, Jesus, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, it kind of reminds me of this thing where, like, if uh, with, like, racism in the US or, or even if, like, families have a kind of falling out, their kids will grow up knowing, hey, we're meant to hate the- these people, you know, but they never really know why. Mm. And it kind of leads to this system of... Uh, the kind of propagation of these <laughs> weird rivalries. Um, and we'll kind of get to that a bit later, I think. But um, yeah, one other but, thing but I want to call I think, out I think Wildbo this... does a good job of capturing that sort of... 
uh, yeah. perceptiveness, but ignorance um, that the yeah. kids kind of have. Uh, and and yeah, and and just another little thing that I think is worth mentioning: all of these early chapters are filled with little spelling errors, um, <laughs> which really just—it's just a nice little detail that sells that this is the diary of an eight-year-old. Like you know, she spells yep. dangerous with a J. Little phonetic mistakes like that, which just yeah, it's just a sensible little detail that was that was nice to see. Yeah, it it really gives you this vibe of like kids say the darndest things, but yeah. about <laughs> demons. <laughs> um, so one other thing I want to point out from this section before we kind of time skip forward is, uh, her her dad shows this one small moment of compassion, right, where he kind of carries her to bed. And holds her while she's crying. And he, uh, I'll quote here. He told me the deal was, I was allowed to cry, but only so long as it was night and my head was on the pillow. In daylight, I cannot cry or show weakness. Mm. And this, I think, really sets up something that is so central to Rose's character. If not, you know, just the idea of being a practitioner, which is the only way you can deal with all of these insane things, both human and other is if you're consistently strong and show no re- show no weakness, you know. Yeah, and um, and that's something. Yeah, we've been seeing well, in other parts of the story as well. But you're right; it's it really sort of puts some of Rose Senior's behavior into perspective. She was all about image. Yeah, totally. Um, and then she she just writes in her diary about how she isn't really able to make any friends at school because there's so many rules and everything's so tense. But it's okay now because since she did this weird thing with her dad. Uh, she can see all these tricky things around the house that want to be her friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the idea of others reaching out to uh, an eight-year-old girl saying, hey, come be my friend, is horrifying. Yeah, and she even calls out saying they're older than it. It's just, it's so fucked up, and I love it, and it, it ties so well into this this theme. The theme of this chapter, which which I think is largely like, being a practitioner is so all-encompassing, it's so all-or-nothing, and it happened to Rose so young. And so the fact mm. that it's like, well, she doesn't have human friends, but it's okay because she's making friends with like goblins and demons and shit. <laughs> yeah, that's yep. fine. Um, it also yeah, makes yeah. me worried for Blake it's and Rose. It's just normal growing up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. It makes me worried for Blake and Rose in the present because are any of these things still in the house? Like it, it, I don't know, it seems to be implied <laughs> here that her dad and mum had a lot of spirits in the house. And I wonder if any of them are still around. Um, mm. So that'll be interesting to see. So Rose has just awakened and uh, she's been playing with local others and there's this kind of weird little collection of scenes where she first gets a, she gets angry at, at, at an other called Arsepint for cheating at some kind of game. Yeah. Um, and is kind of complaining to her dad about how she never wins this game. Yeah, and then, and then he tells her to go hit the books to find out how to punish ask pine or get back at him because that's very important <laughs> and this this ties into that whole thing you were saying before about saving face um yeah and, and how she's sort of being groomed for this um yeah. but yeah so we, we then get another cut from like a few months ahead where she's managed to capture ask pine and she's plotting ways to punish him further yeah so the punishment that i think she kind of uh, favors to give to him is making him agree to do a song and dance about how mangy and pathetic he is in comparison to her every time he meets somebody. <laughs> yeah, which is... Which is a great little childish punishment to give to another. Oh, I love it because it's, it's both so childish and silly, but also felt very practitionery to me. Like, that is also something that's sort of embarrassing that I could see 
you know, like that that's going to hurt your reputation, which we've just been talking about how mm. important that is. So that that would yeah. really the others would probably hate that. So like, and I think this is the last bit we get before we're about to jump eight years ahead to when she's sixteen, and I think this is showing us that transition from her being just a kind of odd kid to really thinking like a practitioner, which is something she's doing a lot yeah. more uh, after the, the time jump. Yeah, even, you know, she's only nine years old, but she started thinking, granted, childishly, but in the ways of a practitioner. Yeah, exactly. And that, that jumps us ahead to when she's 16. And, you know, so now she's at a religious boarding school in Montreal, and she's much more of a practitioner now. So she's actually, the plot for this whole section is really just that she's lost a book and she's trying to get it back. Um and yep. she's, yeah, so she's at a religious boarding school. So this book that she's lost, it's never explicitly said, but presumably has a lot of things about you know demons and shit like that. Yeah. And so <laughs> the the faculty finds it and basically starts freaking out that <laughs> somebody is <laughs> into witchcraft. Um, Which yeah. I mean, they're right. Like, yeah, you know, totally. We, we, talk, <laughs> we tend to hammer on on people for you know witch hunting and stuff in, in other pieces of work, but they're actually. Yeah, you know the religious zealots in in this school are, are right on the money, actually. Yeah, they've actually <laughs> got, gotten it right. So, good on them, I guess. Um, so Rose is trying to like amass power with the kind of spirits that are around the school, but they're all quite weak, and so she she doesn't really she's not able to build up enough power to go back to steal the book until it's too late, and another group of students has found out about it and taken it. Yeah, and so she goes to she goes to to get the book back from these students but finds them having sex and kind of is freaked out by this and runs away um yeah her reaction is interesting yeah is very interesting because she she opens the bit by mocking the religious part of the school like you know she's like a religion yeah like and then she immediately calls out these people for having sex and being like oh that's something like a proper person doesn't do till marriage which is yeah. which is you know sex waiting for sex until marriage is something that's mostly affiliated with with religion. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like I think I think the point of this was meant to be like like sex is such a human thing really. Um mm. and I think it's just showing us how alienated she is from just being a normal person. Like the the thought of seeing people engage in sex is just so confronting to her. Yeah, I, I think this really is kind of so telling about Rose's character. It feels weird calling her Rose Senior. The young <laughs> Rose Senior. Um, you're right. This is just, she's just so distinct from the normal human world. Um, yeah. And from being, a you know, a 16-year-old girl. And I, I love this mm. bit. She she sort of brings this up at the start of her letter. Like, she mentions that she the reason she had the book out in the first place was because she didn't really have any friends. And then at the end of yep. this diary entry as well, there's this other line um, where she says, I wonder if being hated may be better than being a nobody, which just seems mm. like a great TLDR for Rose Senior. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like she would rather, uh, uh, like the whole the whole situation Blake has kind of found himself in with all these nukes that, that seems to have been largely her. It just, it just screams of, she would rather be hated than having achieved nothing and not be remembered. Um, so I just yeah. I love this line as a summary of, of who she is, um, as I understand her yeah. so far. Um, yeah, it, it definitely kind of seems to sum up her character as we know it so far. Um, so what happens next after Rose kind of runs away is 
something called the Lord of Montreal reaches out to Rose and basically tells her to sort sort it out because bad shit's gonna <laughs> happen otherwise. Yeah. Um, now, what do you think the Lord of Montreal is, Elliot? <laughs> um. Oh. Okay. Um. <laughs> Putting you on the spot. Yeah. So. I remember, like, like from Led's talk earlier in the arc. I, I think it was in Led's talk. He sort of mentioned how when places like Jacob's Bell grow, and you know, their forms like uh, a bit of a stability. And I think there was talk then of there being like a lord or lady of the region. So presumably, mm. that's just what's happened in Montreal. Um, is you know that, that Montreal is what Jacob's Bell might look like once things grow and stabilize there. But I think there's a mention of the Lord of Montreal specifically being a merchant spirit who turned into a mortal and is now a god, um, <laughs> which I don't really know what to make of any of that. Uh, yeah. Like some sort of other who got turned into a mortal so he could become a practitioner and got really good at it is my best guess. But I'm, <laughs> mm. I feel like I'm working on very little concrete information and I'm I'm drawing some pretty thick lines to to attach those things <laughs> you got to extrapolate out into the darkness <laughs> yeah. um so again no comment on that uh so <laughs> we skip ahead a few days and rose has kind of at this point missed her chance to get the book back because the students were messing around with it and accidentally summoned a a small demon um yeah and we're, we're now in the aftermath of this and Rose is basically describing what has happened to her diary, which is that this demon came out and did something, uh, something non-physical to to a student called Minnie that has basically left her catatonic. Yeah. And then, obviously, the the other people who were there at the time using the book have sort of been blamed. And, and it's sort of, it, it's like for the first time, Rose sort of sees how the world of practitioning looks to non, well, to normal people. Which is yeah, just to like, muggles, we call them. Impact, yeah, yeah. Um, which is just they're just kind of like, oh, um, it must have been like the teenage boys. Uh, like, like they just find yeah. they just sort of use Occam's razor in a world where magic doesn't exist to just sort of blame people. Um, and it's yeah, I don't know. It's it, it's weird because it, it it strikes her as odd that they were so easily able to just pin it on someone who it obviously probably wasn't. Um, just yeah. to make it make sense. Yeah, th- there's this kind of cognitive dissonance where things have to make sense in the world where they don't understand that magic exists. And so, well, it has to be something, so therefore this, you know? Yeah. Um, and Rose kind of reflects on, on how tragic it is that that Minnie, the catatonic student, and, and or no, neither Minnie nor anybody, neither, nor the men or, or anyone will ever really know what what happened or why it happened. Like, their lives yeah. are just forever broken by this and they they'll never know why um, yeah she I, she's very nervous about like, like she or she thinks about this whole thing like it was such a big part that that broke so many lives and nobody will be nobody will really remember it like you know minnie's just kind of damaged yeah. the boys will probably just rewrite their own memories to make it make sense like the the thought yeah. of it all being so ephemeral uh is terrifying to her yeah and i think this kind of ties back to Rose Senior being so driven and, and determined to succeed in this world, even at the cost of being hated. She doesn't she sees the cost of failure from a young age and she kind of she she clearly doesn't want to end up like 
you know, damaged, I guess is how she would put it. Yeah. Like Minnie is. She she doesn't want to be used up by this world. She wants to be something, even if that something is hated by other people. Yes, and I think that ties perfectly into what happens uh, in the next diary entry where she returns home. Um, mm. But this opens with her uh, being greeted by her mum. And then after her mum leaves, she has a big fight with her father, um, basically about how early she was awakened. And, and it ties back into what you were just saying uh, about her revelation about Minnie. Like she she doesn't like who she is because she was in this world so early. Um, yeah. And, and she swears an oath that she will keep her children out of this life, which yeah. contextualizes some stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. And what... I mean, it's also it also serves as a great example of why someone that young shouldn't have been awake, awoken because they're liable yeah. to say dumb dumb stuff like that uh, when they're emotional, and uh, then be held to it for the rest of their life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I yeah. I guess uh, she doesn't really go into the exact phrasing she uses. I don't think, but it doesn't really explain why she couldn't get her grandkids ready. But that's fine. Mm. Um, <laughs> anyway, she she runs away. Um, but I yep. wanted to circle back to that a bit about Rosa's mother because I thought that was super interesting because the whole, in all the other diary entries, her mum is absent, like traveling to get yep. books and stuff. She's building this library, which presumably Rose uses later in her life, but that's not covered in these chapters. But um, Yeah, I think this, it's fair to assume bit... that this is the library that they've inherited and now this is kind of part of the house. Yeah, definitely. Um and, and presumably it was vital to creating these nukes that Rose Senior has made. Um, but I, mm. I love this encounter with her mum because it's, it's the only time that she ever seems, for her mum ever seems to be around. And the mum does this good job. Like she asks three questions to Rose and she arrives. Like first she asks, is Rose okay? Then she sort of checks that they didn't upset the ward of Montreal. So she she's checking that, you know, the family's going to be okay, I guess. And then mm-hmm. finally she checks on the books and because Rose has been really worried that her mum would be upset if she lost this book because her mum goes to so much effort to get the books. Um, yep. And so it's this, it's this almost moment of really good parenting because like Rose's mother clearly has the priorities in order. She checks Rosa, Rose first, then the family, then the books. And then once, <laughs> she, once she finds out all three are fine, she just disappears again. So it's, it's sort of yep. this moment of, of good parenting, but then it's like, oh no, your dad can have you back now, which you know his track record's pretty bad so far. Um, and it was also at this point that I remembered that Rose Senior's parents were first cousins that got married, um, I believe. Mm. So, yeah. Just an interesting family dynamic <laughs> yeah. all around. Um, so at this point, we're not, we, at this point in the story, we don't fully understand the relationship between practitioners and familiars, but yeah. kind of drawing on contextual clues, we do understand that they are linked, right? Um, so we do get an interaction Sort of, with Rose Senior and her mother's familiar, who is a snake named Ampelos. Yeah. And this is such an interesting part of the story to me, because Ampelos is just sitting there watching her interaction with her dad, watching her kind of blow up and, and fight with her dad about how early she was awakened. And Ampelos never says anything, never reacts even. But Rose Senior kind of sees Ampelos as mocking her the whole way through this kind of scene. Yeah, she's definitely she's constantly talking about how smug he looks, and it's like I I yeah. don't know I don't know because Rose Senior's familiar, the black cat just seemed like a black cat to normal people, so I don't know if practitioners see something else, but I can't help but imagine that it just looks like a snake, and I don't know if you can attribute such emotions <laughs> to a yeah. snake. It's hard to tell whether it's projection or not, right? Like Rose Senior is so cognizant of her perceived failures. 
It, it feels yeah, like it's... projection, but then also the one thing I do know about familiars so far is that it's like an other who chooses to be your familiar and takes a form. And so yeah. I, I don't know how the form choosing happens exactly, but choosing a snake, um, you know, in terms of Abrahamic symbolism, uh, yeah, does probably mean he's he's a, a bit of a dickhead. So I, I am willing to believe <laughs> yeah, that you've got may connotations. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, so the next thing that happens, the next, the final diary entry we get, I think, is Rose describing how she got in a fight with um, Amon Behem, who is one of the presumably ancestors of Laird. Yeah, and they fought, and then their fighting went from practitioner fighting to physical fighting, and from physical fighting to physical intimacy and they end yeah. up sleeping together um and then this is like the first she because she sort of closes this all off by saying you know oh i don't know if he's an enemy or a friend and i can't trust him and you know this is nice like it's like the first mm. emotional clarity she's found and it's through this weird merger of like like you know we just talked before about how sex was something that was showing how alienated she was from humanity and so now yeah. she manages to have some but with another practitioner in a really fucked up circumstance that's very practitionery. So it kind of feels yeah. like this whole message that it's like she finds clarity in this weird hybrid life of being a practitioner with a bit of humanity, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. And I wonder how much Rose Senior differentiates between humans and others, right? Because mm. her philosophy seems to just be treat everybody as though I can't trust them. Treat them as treat yeah. them as though you know, they're going to take any opportunity I give to screw me over and, and do it, um, which is a, a methodology that has been explicitly described as how you should deal with others, right? They, they are yeah. tricky. But it seems that Rose kind of, because of how early she awakened, applies this to just all of her relationships. Yeah, well, and, and going back to her childhood, she didn't really have any friends because she couldn't make any. Yeah. And, and I, all... I mean, I guess her friends were others, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and all, all of her, all the human friends she tried to sort of get together with were, um, you know, Duchamp women and stuff who, you know, betrayed her and everything. So she never really had a yeah. chance to learn to trust humans. And this is the first instance of her really interacting with a human in a good way. And also it's worth noting that Arspint was watching the whole thing. Um, <laughs> just in case you uh, thought it was a, a romantic moment. Um, a guy named Arspint was actually watching it, so it's probably not. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Man, this chapter, I, it, I just find it sad, you know? I just see this as a tragic chapter. Oh, yeah, a hundred percent. But at the same time, it 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 so perfectly explains all of Rose's behavior in the start yeah. of the arc. Um, like just, you can see yeah. how someone, and this is what I love about Wildbow interludes, is he sets someone up as a dickhead, and then you see their backstory, and it just perfectly encapsulates how they ended up that way, and whether or not they're still, you'd still say they're a dickhead or whatever. It it just it, it makes yeah. so much more sense that they're like that. Yeah. They're, they're still a dickhead, but at least I understand why. Yeah, exactly. Oh, um, yeah, I, I feel like we've kind of touched on all the themes for this chapter already, so we don't really need to loop around again. But yeah. just, she's, from being eight years old all the way up until her death, presumably, she just treats everybody as this person will fuck me over. And that that's just kind of her life. Yeah, well, and, and again, 
she couldn't really like I, we we don't know what happened to her parents, but she couldn't turn to the rest of her family as well because she promised mm. to keep her kids out of it. So she didn't even have her the rest of her family to lean on once her parents passed away. Presumably, um, yeah. We don't know what her it must, situation was yeah. in terms of husbands or, or whatever. Mm. Um, but that's it, true. It kind of seems like actually... yeah. It just kind of seems like the, the theme of her whole life was it's Rose versus the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think at this point we've, we've reached the end of the first arc. Yes. This is the first arc that we've covered on the show, but I think we want to kind of loop back around and talk about the themes of the arc as a whole and how this chapter ties into it. Um, and I think the clue is in the name, Elliot (laughs) Bonds, (laughs) right? Uh, As you expect. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe, why don't you start us off? Well, I mean, so obviously I I think. You know, bonds is all about connections, like you know the bonds yeah. that tie you to the world. So, and and it's, you know, we've got Blake and his family, Blake and Rose, um, Blake and his new family is sort of briefly brought up and com- contrasted with his main one. Um, yeah. And then there's also his less concrete or the less interpersonal ones, like Blake becomes bonded to this world of parahum, uh, yeah. not of parahumans, of practitioners. <laughs> um, yeah. And and he's bonded to the house now, like he's he's stuck there, um, except for like six hours a week for this meeting. Um, yeah. So you know, it's it's all about how we're tied into things and and how Blake is tied into stuff. Yeah, I I think the other thing that I want to bring up about about this arc is as the start of the arc and this chapter contextualizing it really paint the picture the picture of this is a this is a cycle that has gone on for a countless amount of time, right? Um, the Thorburn family in contest with other practitioners around Jacob's Bell and, and all this stuff. Yeah. This has just been the the way things have been. And, I mean, you know, that's like, you know, we've got Rose talking about stuff happening in the 1930s and it's all the same family names. Like, she's having yeah. issues with Duchamps and Bahames and they're exactly the names yeah. that are coming up. Uh, that Blake's fighting. So yeah, it's just a very static environment uh, in Jacob's Bell, apparently. Yeah, and you you really can imagine these exact things that happened in you know 1931 happening today with the younger members of the the Thorburn family, and that oh, they'll yeah. be the exact same. <laughs> yeah, no, it seems um, it seems like the family reputations back then are exactly the same as what they are now. But uh, yeah, so the one thing I I want to bring up about this though is the one difference here is Blake's self-made family, right? I think I think the the fact that Blake broke connections to the Thorburns and made his own new family is so important like symbolically when we're talking about this kind of perpetual cycle because yeah. Blake I mean, you know, he's he's here now. <laughs> he's he's back again, <laughs> but at least for a time that cycle was broken. You know? What's interesting is he's gone and made a bunch of human friends and uh, slash family that he will trust, and that's really what's going to differentiate him from Rose Senior. I think is that he has yeah people he can trust, or he's he's learnt to trust people at some point in his life, which is something an experience even she Rose never had. Junior, even Rose Junior seems to be in the same position that Rose Senior was, where it's like, mm. well, yeah, I just can't trust my family. I can't trust people in general, you know. Yeah, that's very true. Um, yeah, so 
if we're kind of taking the first arc and extrapolating, I think the fact that Blake has a new family, that he broke the cycle, gives me some hope that maybe <laughs> he can break the cycle again. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And so tying it all back to that word bonds, uh, the name of the arc, I mean, also there's the concept of a legal bond, which is like a, mm. a, an agreement. And obviously that ties in just to the world. Like that's that's how magic mostly operates in this world. Um, it's yeah. all about making pacts and agreements and 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 bonds. So um, the other it ties the other in meaning well. that I like, I mean, it's so crazy how many meanings <laughs> these <laughs> chapter titles seem to have. The other meaning I like is the idea of you know like government bonds, right? Like war bonds. The government needs money, and and we you you kind of take out this IOU with somebody or something, and then have to pay it back at a later date, or or they pay it back to you at a later date, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it's very easy to see that that meaning also quite explicitly explicitly <laughs> applies here with the karmic debt that the Thorburn family has. Yeah, that's true. Built up. Yeah, so many words. They have so many meanings, <laughs> <laughs> and they're all seemingly relevant. It, even to the extent that I I can kind of imagine Wildbo just picks a word and says, "What are all the meanings of this word? Now, how can I make them all relevant to this story?" <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it feels like you must have to start with the word because they fit so perfectly. Yeah. Um, yeah. What else do we want to say about this arc? Is there anything else? Um, I just, I mean, uh, I guess as a point of comparison to, to something like Worm, I, I just sort of wanted to mm-hmm. mention, wait, this arc had to do a lot more uh, heavy lifting in terms of uh, exposition um, because the world mm. of Pact is a much more involved world. Like the, the world of Parahumans kind of relies on a fairly simple premise that's well within the public conscious which is just superheroes yeah. and and Wild Boy only really had beginning. to explain specific groups as they were introduced or or specific things but for the most yeah. part it was just hey it's a world and it has superheroes you kind of know the basics um yeah. Pact's world is much more intertwined and involved and he's like Wild Boy's had to do a lot more in this arc of explaining how things work and i still feel like we've only gotten a small fraction of the information that we need to really understand how blake's going to operate um whereas that Mm. wasn't really how i felt one one arc into worm yeah yeah that's a good point um i guess we will see how it how (laughs) how he does operate (laughs) um I see we've got a section in our notes here, Elliot, for predictions. Oh, so yes. So what do you got for us? Well, I forgot to make some predictions in, in some previous episodes, so I, I, I'm going to play some catch-up here. Um, yeah. This one seems like a bit of a... Like, that we're meant to predict this, so I have a feeling it's going to end up being wrong, but I am just going to stick by it and say that uh, Barbatorum had something to do with creating Miro's, because mm. uh, he's been affiliated with Mirrors and everything. Um so and he seems like Rose Senior's go-to powerful demon guy. Um so uh I want to I want to predict that and then uh my other one so I was going to I was going to be really clever and predict that Blake would have a, a bird as his familiar uh but then I hopped on the Parahuman subreddit again and noticed Blake's in the header with a bird on his hand. Um <laughs> so now I Oops. feel like that to be cheating. <laughs> uh so I'm I'm gonna go ahead and say I, so I think an other becomes your familiar. So I'm gonna say mm-hmm. that he's gonna try and make Rose his familiar to get her out of the mirror. So I'm gonna predict that his familiar will be Miro's as well. Okay, two predictions there that Barbatorum is involved with the creation of Rose, 
and that Rose will become Blake's bird familiar. Yeah. Um, and that's the end of arc one. Man, it's been a month since we started this show. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've been going we've been going pretty good, I think. But we now that we've finished our first arc, we definitely want to kind of check in with you, the audience, um, and you, Elliot, check in with you as well, <laughs> uh, and just see how everyone feels about how the show has been going so far. Um, so we set out to do a kind of specific format where we dive through the chapters, uh, you know, every few days, dive through each new chapter. Um, but we, we want to get feedback on some of the other things we've been doing as well. So, for example... Uh, we do kind of one bonus thing per episode, whether that's a, a monster corner or kind of revisiting old comments from five years ago, stuff like that. Um, and just get get opinions on what stuff you like, what stuff you don't like, what you would like to see more of, less of, or any kind of other ideas that you have for what we could do with the show. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're very much interested in, you know, seeing what everyone else is after uh, out of this out of this podcast. And now how can people leave us their those, their <laughs> comments on those things, Elliot? Oh, that's a good question, Ruben. Um, the easiest way is to head to <laughs> mediamdpodcast.com, uh, which has links to our Twitter and Facebook, uh, and it, is, it also has a big contact button, which will help you send us an email as well. And uh, yep. so send um, us ideas to any of those. You can find a link to do that in the show notes of this here episode. You can also find in those very same show notes a link to our uh, discussion thread for this episode where we can talk about what everyone thought about how about roasting his tragic uh, childhood, I guess. Yes, uh, <laughs> and we also accept podcast ideas in, in that thread as well. Yep. And so I guess the only other thing to say is that our next episode will be up on Friday the 19th of January, I believe. Uh, I think it's the 18th. But You're close. right, it is the 18th. I You passed we'll my be... test. <laughs> we will be talking about uh arc 2 damages so join us for 2.1 on the 18th of january and we will see you then see ya If you were going to awaken Elliot, what do you think the uh, what do you think your your object would be? Oh, that's a good question. Probably my laptop. You got to pick. <laughs> yeah, man. Like that's why I thought the smartphone one in the comments from a few weeks ago was interesting. Yeah, it's like shit. Yeah, what do I even like have? Something like a smartphone would be great for the awakening ceremony. Yeah, yeah. But then who are you going to call? A PS4 controller? I don't even know. <laughs>